Hello, and welcome to Nerd Roamer. This is your host, The Cross, coming to you from our studio. Here at Nerd Roamer, we love nerding out about the history, science, and culture of the places we travel. But we got tired of burying our heads in guidebooks. There's so much out there to see and do. Let us do the heavy lifting on digging up fun facts and fascinating stories about the places you travel. Whether you're on the road or just want to learn more about the world out there, we've got you covered. Deep dives for long drives. This is Nerd Roamer. Roam wisely. Thanks for joining us as part of our Season 1 Utah theme. We are going to be asking the question today, What's the deal with the Great Salt Lake? What is up with that? So, I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes for a second, unless you're actually the one driving, then keep them open. But maybe close your mind's eye and picture yourself passing through the Salt Lake Valley. So you're passing through the Salt Lake Valley these days, and you find yourself just surrounded by mountains. You're in this desert surrounded by mountains. To the east, you've got the Wasatch. To the west, you've got the Okur and the Stansbury Mountains. And in the middle of the Salt Lake to the north, you've got Frary Peak, which is arising from Antelope Island, this big, big island in the Salt Lake. Now I'm going to ask you, transport yourself back to the Pleistocene. Now that's what all the nerdy kids are calling the Ice Age these days. And your experience might be somewhat different. So the Pleistocene lasted for roughly 2 million years, and it ended about 11,000 years ago, as the world transitioned into its current epoch, the Holocene. The Pleistocene, as the Ice Age, cool kid terminology might belie, was a period of intense glaciation. So up to 30% of the Earth's surface at that time was covered by sheets of glacial ice. So we're talking Boku ice all over the world. For much of its history, the Salt Lake Valley actually looked a lot like it does today, with some small lakes isolated in an otherwise dry valley. But roughly 30,000 years ago, as we're exiting the Pleistocene, glaciers are starting to melt. You've got these really moist conditions. I know that can be a trigger word for some people, but moist conditions caused by a wet climate and melting glaciers starting to favor the accumulation of water in a lot of low-lying areas, creating these things called Pluvial Lakes. If that's not a folk band name, I don't know what is. Pluvial Lakes. I would love to see them. I bet they've got a banjo probably playing at some sort of bar with free-range cocktails or something like that. Uh, anyway, one well-known example of a pluvial lake that maybe our listeners from the Midwest might be familiar with would be Lake Agassiz, which covered these Huge areas of Minnesota, North Dakota, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. We're going to be talking about a different pluvial lake. The pluvial lake we're going to be talking about is Lake Bonneville. In the western U.S., these moist conditions led to the formation of Lake Bonneville, which basically extended from present-day Salt Lake south to about Beaver, Utah. So that's on I-15 as you're headed south. Kind of northwest to Wendover, Nevada and then north to Red Rock Pass, which is in Idaho. It's about an hour south of Pocatello, Idaho, so not too far from I-15 up in southern Idaho. At its zenith, Lake Bonneville covered over 20,000 square miles and was nearly 1,000 feet deep. 1,000 feet deep. 
This Paleo Lake was named by geologist G.K. Gilbert after Captain Benjamin Bonneville, who was an army officer who, among other things, helped blaze the Oregon Trail. At a point roughly 18,000 years ago or so, Lake Bonneville decided it could not be chained. You know, it could not be reined in anymore. It needed to live free. And so it escaped its basin, crossing over Red Rock Pass into southern Idaho and flooding the Snake River drainage en route to the Pacific Ocean. The peak flow of this flood when Lake Bonneville breached Red Rock Pass was 35 million cubic feet per second. The scale for some of these geologic events is just enormous to think about. 35 million cubic feet per second. Just to put that in perspective, that is five times higher than the flow of the largest modern-day river, which would be the Amazon. So this obviously is going to leave a big impression on the land. The rippling effect that you can see in the sediments where this flood really, you know, the water really flowed over those areas left behind essentially a fingerprint of sediment that geologists can use to date other layers of rock. It was such an impressive event. By 11,000 BC, the lake had kind of receded to its current level, and we were left with basically our modern-day lakes. So the, the three big modern-day lakes that are kind of left from Lake Bonneville are Sevier Lake, which is kind of a seasonal, quasi-dry lake in southern Utah, kind of down towards Beaver, um, Utah Lake, which is a shallow lake near Provo, Utah, and then the Great Salt Lake. The crazy thing is that this water emptied from Lake Bonneville because of the flooding and then the conditions becoming less moist so quickly that the rapid relief of the water weight from the Earth's crust actually caused areas in the center of the old lake bed to rebound upward. So, for example, if you look at the shoreline of Lake Bonneville, which you can kind of see if you look at the hills around the Salt Lake Valley, the Bonneville shoreline is actually 50 feet higher on Antelope Island, which was in the middle of Lake Bonneville, than it is on the Wasatch foothills, which are essentially like the eastern shore of Lake Bonneville. All right, so we got that squared away. We were talking about we had a big lake with a big event of flooding that receded the lake and left behind a big impression on the land. Let's talk about, so just for a second, let's talk about these great basins um, and this, this great basin that occupies a large chunk of the western U.S. The Great Basin is an area that covers a large portion of Nevada and Utah as well as, as parts of Idaho, California, Colorado, Oregon. And it's North America's largest endorheic basin, meaning that it is this big bowl of land that water flows into with really limited or no means of draining out of. The Great Basin itself is not really one large basin, but it's kind of crisscrossed by a number of north-south mountain ranges separated by smaller basins in between, leading to this kind of basin and range topography that you'll hear people talk about. And this is what, if, if you look at a map, this is what gives Western North America this kind of ribbed appearance on topographic maps. The basin itself is largely desert. Um, you've got hotter deserts to the south and high cold deserts to the north. The mountain ranges rising from this desert make these little islands of alpine or montane forests that often have really unique plant and animal species 
because they're so separated from one another. So it's just like different, you know, like Darwin's finches arose on the Galapagos Islands. These are like little islands of forest that different species can kind of branch off on. Most of the precipitation in the Great Basin falls as snow on these islands of elevated land. And this snowmelt kind of runs off into rivers that eventually lead to different sinks throughout the basins. So these include the Great Salt Lake would be an example of one of these sinks, uh, Utah Lake. And then even if you think about some other areas in the Great Basin, something like Lake Tahoe or Pyramid Lake in Nevada and California would be an example of another sink system. Let's get nerdy about lakes for a second. So Closed lakes, such as the Great Salt Lake or Pyramid Lake in Nevada, tend to become saline over time. And why is that? So without any outflow, these lakes take in water from streams and runoff from the mountains that's laden with minerals. So you've basically got this bathtub that you're filling up. The water itself eventually reaches an equilibrium in which it's evaporating or seeping into the ground at the same rate that it's coming in. And you have to remember that when the water's evaporating, it's just the H2O. It's just the water molecules that are evaporating. And it's leaving behind all those dissolved minerals. It's leaving behind sodium, chloride, magnesium, all that stuff. So gradually over time, it stands to reason that if you're dumping in minerals and water, but only removing the water, the concentration of the minerals is eventually going to be higher than it is in the water coming in. It's going to concentrate, get more salty, get more minerally. There are a lot of different factors that can influence kind of where the salt level settles out. The mineral content of the water flowing in can make a big difference. The surface area of the lake can make a big difference. Having a deep versus a shallow lake can affect it. Uh, basically, that all will play into the evaporation rate. Pyramid Lake in Nevada is deeper than the Great Salt Lake and actually contains more water despite having less surface area. And it is able to maintain a lower salinity than the Great Salt Lake. So Pyramid Lake is a sink, just like the Great Salt Lake, but its salinity is roughly 0.5%. For reference, seawater, if you're out in the ocean, gallivanting around, you get splashed in the mouth with water, that is going to taste really salty. Seawater is at 3.5% salinity. Human blood is roughly 0.9%. So that's kind of, people in medicine will say that that's like normal saline concentration at 0.9%, which if you're a vampire might be really satisfying to consume if you're hungry, but probably isn't super refreshing. So I'd love to have a vampire on the show to ask them, but I'm guessing it doesn't taste very refreshing. If you're thirsty and you're a vampire, you're still probably drinking water. <laughs> Pyramid Lake is thus, because it's even less salty than seawater, even less salty than, say, human plasma, it's able to support aquatic life. It's actually quite a popular fishing destination. The Great Salt Lake, on the other hand, is very, very shallow, as we'll see, and it is subject to wide variations in salinity as the lake levels go up and down. Typical salinity you might be looking at for the Salt Lake would be somewhere in the 20 to 25% range which is like brine territory, like we're on the verge of crystallization there, as opposed to the 0.5% for Pyramid Lake, or even 3.5% for the ocean, much saltier even than the ocean for the Great Salt Lake. The size and the level of the Great Salt Lake vary wildly with precipitation. It's been measured at anywhere between 
1,300 square miles over the course of its history. Wide variations in the size. Around 2,000 square miles is about an average size. It's a super shallow lake, so small fluctuations in the level can influence the surface area quite a bit. Just to give you a point of reference, the deepest point of the Great Salt Lake on average would be about 35 feet. And the whole lake, if you average the whole depth of the lake, is typically 10 to 15 feet deep. Like a hotel swimming pool, maybe like a deep hotel swimming pool. Not, not a very deep lake that we're talking about here. There's a railroad that runs across the lake about a third of the way down from the northern tip. And this cuts the water flow between the north part and the south part. All the inflowing rivers and whatnot come into the southern part of the Great Salt Lake. All that more freshly mixed water doesn't make it up to the north. The northern part tends to become a lot more salty because it has less inflowing fresh water. And it has a lower level overall. Like, depth is lower in the northern part than the southern part, and it's much more salty. The extremely high salt content of the northern third above that railroad is kind of interesting. It leads to the growth of different microbe and algae species than in the southern part. And so if you look at the Great Salt Lake on a satellite photograph, if you pull up a map app on your phone and look at the satellite image of the Great Salt Lake, you'll see that the northern part of the lake has this really distinctive reddish color. And it's very, very obvious. Once you, you know, when if you don't know what you're looking at and you look at the pictures, you might just assume the satellites were taking pictures of the north and south parts on different days. But no, the north part is actually a lot more red in color. The high salinity of the lake overall makes it pretty much inhospitable to most aquatic life, unlike Pyramid Lake. There are some areas that are a little bit more brackish near where the rivers flow in. And those areas, say where the Bear River comes in, for example, can support some fish. Uh, but that's not a big part of the lake. Otherwise, the lake essentially hosts in terms of actual aquatic creatures living in the lake. Two main types of animals to consider. So one is brine shrimp. So they can live in brine, which is basically, you know, what the Salt Lake is. Brine shrimp, you might know, I used to get these sometimes as a present when I was a kid. You would know them as sea monkeys would be one one way that they're marketed. These little pet brine shrimp critters. Um, they're also used for feeding uh, other aquatic species that are being raised in captivity. The other species to be aware of are brine flies. The brine flies are not a joke at the Salt Lake. So if you visit the Salt Lake, be aware that if you're visiting during the warm weather months, the brine flies can number in the billions and they can make visits quite unpleasant if you're not prepared. So if you're going in the summer, I definitely recommend wearing long sleeves, long pants. I really recommend people think that this is overkill when I recommend this, but you'll see the people out there hiking that are having a good time are wearing head nets. I recommend you get a head net. They're very cheap. You can get them online or at any camping store and it'll make a world of difference because these brine flies just number in the in the billions. Consequently, between this abundance of insect life, especially during the warmer weather months, you've got the marshes around the Salt Lake. This is a very hospitable place for a lot of bird life. So it's one of the main migration thoroughfares in the middle of the country for birds migrating between the tropics and the Arctic tundra. 
and you also have a lot of birds that will nest in the marshes. So it's a very significant bird watching and wildlife area. And in the spring and fall, places like the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge will see huge concentrations of wildlife. So things like shorebirds, like avocets and ibis and waterfowl, you'll see them in just total abundance. So I highly recommend visiting something like the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge in spring or fall if you get the chance. As you look around the lake on a satellite image or as you drive past on I-80, you can see these rectangular ponds crisscrossed by dirt roads. These are often really colorful and beautiful. And that's an artifact of, again, different plankton and algae species living in these different salinity level ponds. These ponds are managed by companies and they're salt evaporation ponds. The companies pump in water and allow it to evaporate. And that leaves behind, once it's dry, all these minerals that they can then mine and sell for things like road salt, fertilizer, magnesium. About a sixth of the world's magnesium is produced from the Salt Lake, so it's pretty significant. With all this talk of inhospitable lakes and harsh, salty environments, I do want to point out that there is an island on the lake. If you visit the lake, you're probably going to be visiting one of two spots. If you're just passing through on I-80, the Great Salt Lake Marina is a small state park on the southern shore that is a good quick stop if you just want to see the lake, get an overview of the flavor, and kind of move on with your road trip. If you are in Salt Lake for a little bit more time and you want to maybe immerse yourself a little bit more in the lake ecosystem, I think Antelope Island is a good pick. So this is a protected state park. It's an island in the southeastern part of the lake that sometimes is connected to the mainland by land. Sometimes there's water separating it, depending on the lake level. We found archaeologic evidence that shows occupation of this island by archaic populations going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The first European exploration that's kind of recorded of the island was by John C. Fremont and Kit Carson when they came through in 1845. At that time, the lake level, to give you an idea of the fluctuation, at that time, the lake level was low enough that they actually got there by horseback. The island naturally hosted herds of antelope, and that's where that name came from. You'll see on posters and billboards and brochures, this iconic herd of buffalo is also a big part of the park nowadays and know that those were introduced by man, and it's kind of an interesting story. So let's nerd out here for a second and think about this little story, and then we'll be able to move on to our knowledge nugget to round out the episode. Early in the 1800s, the Mormon church dispatched Fielding Gar, who was a rancher, to start a ranch on the island to raise money for Mormon missionary work. He built this ranch house on the southern tip of the island. Incidentally, this ranch house is the oldest Mormon structure remaining in all of Utah in its original spot. Interesting, really fun fact. You can visit it if you visit the island today. Eventually, he sells off the ranch and the rest of the island. It's purchased by a man named John Dooley, and his idea was to turn the island into a tourist destination in addition to the ranch. Now, you'll see today with the state park, this was not a bad plan, these days, it's quite a popular state park for people to visit. At the time, one thing to note is that we are in a time frame here in the later 1800s where the American bison population that had been uncountably huge, you know, it, it was absolutely ginormous, 
had been absolutely crushed by overhunting and was essentially on life support. There were probably less than a thousand American bison left at that point. Dooley purchases 12 from a guy in Texas and imports them to the island. The herd would eventually grow in number into the hundreds. Land on Antelope Island is very hospitable to American bison, and there were not very many predators on the island. And nowadays, there are essentially no predators of bison on the island. The herd grew to number in the hundreds, quite large. And at one point, it was probably actually the largest remaining herd of American bison in the world. So think about how incredible that is. That this island that did not have any bison, this guy imports a herd of 12 bison, and for a time, that's the largest reserve of American bison we have left anywhere. So Dooley eventually, the tourism thing never really pans out. The ranching on the island is hard, and he sells the island to a man named A.H. Leonard in 1924. And this guy initially tries to sell off the bison, but it turns out there were a few things conspiring against him. So for one thing, it turns out wrangling bison is not as easy as it looks. Number two, getting them off of this island surrounded by really, really shallow water is also really difficult to load heavy bison on a boat and not have it bottom out on you. So it's really challenging getting them off the island for two. And then for three, the American palate, people just didn't love eating bison. It's not it's not like today where you'll see this as kind of like a quote-unquote healthier alternative to beef or whatever sometimes. So at the time, people just didn't love bison. Eventually, he kind of punts on this idea of farming bison and selling them long-term and decides to profit off the herd by holding a huge hunt. So he called it the big buffalo hunt, in which he would charge big game hunters to come out and go nuts, really. It was very expensive to do this, to come out and stay on the island. And just to give you an idea, this herd had numbered in the hundreds. By the end of the big hunt, we were down to 50 bison on the island really, really crushing this herd with hunting them aggressively. There was a huge public outcry regarding the hunt. So we're in the 1920s here. Huge public outcry, but it wound up taking decades of growing desire to see the island and the herd protected before Utah eventually started to buy pieces of the island to protect it as a park. So that was the 1960s when they started to do that. In the 1980s, they finalized purchasing the ranch on the southern part of the island. And now today, The entire island is managed as a state park, complete with campgrounds, beaches, antelope, bighorn sheep, other wildlife. The bison herd today is managed pretty actively to stay around 600 bison due to the lack of natural predators on the island, relatively healthy bison population with not many genetic diseases. There just is not that much natural die-off in the herd, and so controversially they do round them up to check their health once a year and allow some hunting. The argument of the wildlife managers is that, you know, if they did not do those things, the herd would overpopulate and become racked with disease and it would be a dangerous, bad situation. They do sell off bison to ranchers, wildlife refuges, and the like to kind of bolster other herds. But it's very, very easy these days to still enjoy this huge bison herd if you go to the island. 600 bison, it's not a big island. If you drive the length of the island, you'll see several herds of bison. They are a huge attraction to this day. And now for today's Knowledge Nugget. You want some fries with that Knowledge Nugget? 
fans of fast cars may have had your ears perk up and recognized a name earlier in the episode, Bonneville. The Bonneville Salt Flats are a hard salt pan remnant of the Pleistocene Lake Bonneville we talked about earlier. The flats developed when flat areas of the Paleo Lake's bottom kind of dried out and left behind this crystallized salt. In the early 20th century, it was up to three feet thick in some places. The hard, flat, regular surface has been recognized as an ideal surface for testing the limits of land vehicles for over a century. In 1914, the first unofficial land speed record was set there by terrible Teddy Teslaff, so named because he raced in the first IndyCar race series so aggressively that he would either win or crash. There was no in-between. Terrible Teddy. He reached 142 miles per hour in a 300 HP Benz. Later, Sir Malcolm Campbell would break 300 miles per hour at Bonneville in a car called Bluebird, which you can see today at the Motor Speedway Hall of Fame in Talladega, Alabama. And that was the first official land speed record set at Bonneville. The most recent land speed record reached at Bonneville was by Gary Gabelich in 1970, and that was 630 miles per hour. Since that time, the records have been eclipsed by individuals racing in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada rather than at the Bonneville Salt Flats. The flat playa there is a remnant of a different Pleistocene lake, Lahontan, and it's also incidentally where Burning Man is, if you were ever curious. The current record, if this ever comes up, the current land speed record set in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada is 763 miles per hour and that was set in 1997 by the Brit Andy Green. Part of the loss of speed supremacy at the Bonneville Salt Lats is due to the fact that the salt flats themselves are actually decreasing. They're disappearing. Oh my goodness, where are they going? Uh, well, glad you asked. So where the salt thickness was once measured, as we said, in two, three, four feet, it's now a crust that's just a few inches thick. The reasons for this aren't 100% clear, and it's a little bit controversial. Some place a lot of the blame with mineral companies, with government leases, mining potassium and other minerals and not adequately replenishing the salt. And other people place the blame at the feet of the racers themselves, saying that all that traffic on the salt flats is contributing. There's also probably some natural variation in the thickness of the salts, as well as just some shifts in the climate and weather patterns as well. In any case, the area of the salt flats usable for racing has decreased. The courses now have to be set up at roughly half the length necessary for elite racers to challenge the world speed records. In areas where the crust is thin, you'll also see cars now starting to punch through and leave really deep ruts. There is an organization of racing enthusiasts called the Save the Salt Coalition, that's pressured Utah legislators and the Bureau of Land Management to secure adequate replenishment of the salt flats. Uh, and their efforts are ongoing. What they're looking for is they want, especially these companies, but also some funding from these other agencies to fund the return of salt to the flats by pumping in one and a half million tons of brine each year to kind of replenish the salt. And their hope is that that will make this salt grow to be feet thick again and provide a nice hard surface for racing so that they can set up long enough courses where new land speed records are being set at Bonneville again. You can check out the Bonneville salt flats yourself. It's public land 
accessible off of I-80 as you're approaching Wendover from Salt Lake City. So heading westbound on I-80 through that last little bit of Utah before you get to Nevada, the Salt Flats will be there and you can get off the freeway and check them out for yourself. Just be careful not to drive in any restricted areas where you might be at risk of getting stuck or leaving some ruts in the ground as well. Thank you for listening. You know, nerd roamers out there, I always try to leave you with at least one deep dive of your own that you can do, some further reading that you can pursue, because reading about paleogeology, even for the nerdiest of nerds, might be a little bit dry to some. I wanted to leave you with this recommendation for a memoir. If you want to learn more about some of these people that would live near the wildlife refuges and the wildlife refuges themselves, kind of around the Salt Lake, I recommend checking out the memoir by Terry Tempest Williams, Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family and Place, and that'll give you a more personal perspective on living near the Salt Lake. Remember, for updates on future episodes and content, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NerdRomer, and you can find us to listen and or subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Until next time, keep roaming, nerds.